0: The human history at the Grand Canyon is as varied and unique as the canyon itself. From ancient first peoples, to Spanish conquistadors,
1: to a modern assortment of oddballs, dreamers, and entrepreneurs. These are their stories. This is Echoes from
2: the Canyon.
3: Inspired by exciting tales of recent river trips, newlyweds Glenn and Bessie Hyde fantasized about the rapids of the Colorado River during the summer of tending family fields in Idaho. Soon after harvest was stored for the year, they made their way to Green River, Utah to gather supplies and build their vessel, a flat-bottomed sweep scow. On October 20, 1928, they began their journey. Launching on the river, they would never leave.
4: I was planning to join my son and Bessie. I should have been with them. They say I should stop searching, but I can't. I know the possibility of finding them alive is not good, but there might be a chance. I know my boy, even though he and Bessie only know the canyon through books and maps. I know Glenn can survive in any environment. I taught him how. He didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. We are survivors. We do what we need to do. It has been 702 days since they were last seen. 690 days since Bessie's last journal entry. But I cannot stop searching. Searching for the only answer as to what happened, what accident could have occurred. It had to be an accident. Some say they might have purposefully hiked out and started new lives. Glenn wouldn't do that though. He would not just walk away from me, from his farm, his family. And he would not leave Bessie if she could not make it. He loves her so. You can tell she loves him just as much. You can see it in her eyes. No, it was an accident. It had to be an accident. All their supplies were still in the boat. Bessie's journal, Glenn's rifle, their money, their hiking and camping supplies, their food, all left in the scow. There was no sign of trouble, just the two of them missing. They had all they needed to survive and planned to stay near the water if anything went awry. When his letter arrived about his accident in Marble Canyon, I wondered how Bessie was doing on this trip. It would have shook me up to see Glenn being thrown from the scow while going through the rapid after getting knocked on the chin with the sweep. Then to see him struggle to get back in the boat after being underwater, tossed around through the rushing water. Not the type of honeymoon most girls would agree to. Bessie's different, though. She is tough and eager for adventure. I didn't wait. They wrote me over and over that the worst water was behind them but I never believed it. I never stopped fearing for them. I should have been there. I wished with all that I am that I would hear from my boy by December 11th. But when I didn't, I realized I wasn't surprised. I didn't wait. I was on my way to Las Vegas the next day. I feel like I've searched everywhere and nowhere. I'm thankful for so many folks who have helped me. I wish I could be on every search, on every ground search, every plane, every river trip. I have nothing left. I want to search every side canyon and ravine, but the money is gone. This depression is hitting the country so hard. Glenn's insurance money is gone. I've already mortgaged my farm. I've drained accounts. I have done things I am not proud of. I have nothing left except my will. I know that my boy and sweet Bessie have passed. I just cannot stop trying to find them. I need to know what happened. I believe I know where it happened now. I thought for so long the water was calm in that part of the river, no matter what anyone said. That rapid is worse than I ever knew. Ellsworth has helped me understand this. I am a man who accepts what comes my way, but in this case I wish so many things had gone differently. I wish they had accepted the life preservers Emery had offered them when they stopped at the village on the south rim. I wish there had been more water when they ran the river. I wish we had checked what was on the other end of that scow line before Emery cut it. That line was stuck tight on something below the waves. Despite it all, I have been planning a fourth search, this time by water. I want to give those side canyons to the north, too rugged to reach by foot, a closer look. When I sleep, I search for them, every night. Until I have the means again, dreams will have to do. As I sit in this cabin on Glenn's property, I'm comforted by sweet Bessie's final words and poems. And I still have what Nelson brought me from their last camp. A few dried lima beans. A can just like any I have in the larder here on the farm. The only difference is, I know my son and his sweet wife touched them. It is the closest I may ever get to my boy.
3: Roland Hyde never made it back to Grand Canyon to search for his son. He finished out his days on his and Glenn's farm in Idaho. In 1945, Roland passed away at the age of 86, 15 years after his last search. He never found out what happened to his son and Bessie. The Honeymooners' disappearance on the Colorado River is still one of the greatest mysteries of Grand Canyon history. Mamma, dear, please come. My dolly must be drowned. When I put her on the creek, she sunk without a sound. Wee Betty's eyes filled with tears. Where could poor dolly be? Perhaps she turned to a mermaid and drifted out to sea.
5: Grand Canyon National Park, like most places in the southwest, have many far-fetched stories and exaggerations. Many of these tales are as tall as the canyon walls. Between the miners, rangers, and mule wranglers, it can be difficult to tell when truth gets in the way of a good story. However, out of all the locations within the canyon, Phantom Ranch seems to be the setting of many plots found at the bottom of Grand Canyon by the Colorado River. Phantom Ranch is considered an oasis by backpackers and mule riders, with an abundance of shade, creeks, lodging, and lemonade for sale. Despite its long history, there remains many unanswered questions about the ranch. During my time at Phantom, I heard accounts by others that I found hard to believe. Ranchers and mule wranglers told me the old bunkhouse at Phantom Ranch is known to be haunted. It is said a female mule wrangler was surprised when she saw a ghost of a mule packer standing inside the bunkhouse of where he died of natural causes. She said it was more concerning to know she would sleep in the same bed he died in. Many hikers and campers in the campground say they have seen shadows walking past them, sometimes wearing clothes from a different time like suits and ankle length skirts from the 1950s, while others dressed as hikers only asked for water. Others have heard the crunch of heavy boots on gravel without seeing the source of the noise. I do not know if I believe these stories, but there are parts of Phantom that remain unexplained. One that remains is how Phantom acquired its name. The ranch itself was named by its architect and designer, Mary Jane Elizabeth Coulter. The story goes that the ranch owners as well as Coulter's employers, the Fred Harvey Company, wanted to name the lodge Roosevelt Chalet named after President Theodore Roosevelt, who visited the area eight years before. Apparently, Coulter said that Roosevelt had too many places already named after him and demanded the name be Phantom Ranch after nearby Phantom Canyon. The origin of Phantom Canyon is harder to place. It is not known who or when Phantom was given its name or what name it had before. There are several explanations, but nothing beyond theories and guesswork. Deb Branning wrote this about Phantom Canyon and Grand Canyon Ghost Stories. There is much speculation to why the word phantom became associated with the area. Phantom Ranch was said to be named after Phantom Creek, which appears to be hidden from view like a phantom. Legends tell us that prospectors called it phantom because of the eerie, mist-filled air on cold mornings deep in the canyon. Perhaps it seemed like a ghost because of the elusive oasis tucked away in the folds of Phantom Fault, and it cannot be seen from the ramp. Others proclaimed its named after the ominous Phantom Rock. This formation stands about two miles north of the ranch along North Kaibab Trail, a rocky projection along the trail that resembles a dark cloaked phantom. It may be hard to know for sure how Phantom Canyon received its name. But hike through its narrows during the right or wrong time, it's easy to see that Phantom is a fitting one. On cold mornings, there can be a fog or smoke drifting through the quiet canyon. During the summer monsoon season, hiking up the creek can turn from a relaxing swimming hole to a tragic misstep. A few minutes after stepping off the trail into the water, the canyon quickly turns into a narrow channel and the sky into a thin blue line it would be nearly impossible to see any signs of a storm approaching. The only warning of a flash flood in the canyon would be a slow rumble like thunder that doesn't stop but only grows louder. Visitors caught in a flash flood within Phantom Canyon are often swept away. In July 1997, one visitor was caught in the flood and was tossed a half mile downstream before he was able to self rescue. He escaped but others are often not as fortunate. The person who named Phantom Canyon will probably never be known. You will never know why or for what reason Phantom was the word that came into their mind, and why that name has stuck for over a hundred years. It is one side canyon amongst hundreds of others within the National Park. If one canyon can hold this many stories and unanswered questions, one can only imagine what other canyons
1: can tell, Howdy, William Bass here. I started the Bass Camp in 1884, and it has become home to quite the community of visitors. Often they come for a week and stay for a month. I've shared my home with the likes of Zane Gray, John Muir, Thomas Moran, and even Henry Ford. I'm a member of a large community of prospectors along the rim, but also have grown close to my neighbors that have a soup pie, who helped me locate local springs, And in turn, I've given them seeds and championed efforts to build a school and post office in Havasu Canyon. There are a lot of great people in this great place, so come on out and let me introduce you to all of them. I'm William Bass, and we'll leave the lantern lit for you.
2: On May 24, 1869, John Wesley Powell left Green River Station, Wyoming Territory, with nine men in four wooden boats, with the intention of running the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, the last unexplored area in the West. On August 30, 1869, Powell floated out of Grand Canyon with five men and two boats, having achieved his goal. What happened to the four men who started the trip but did not finish it? Frank Goodman, an Englishman who was roaming the American West in search of experience, found it when he signed on to Powell's expedition. But he nearly drowned in early June at Disaster Falls when his boat sank, taking all his gear and clothing with it, along with a third of the supplies of the expedition. By early July, Goodman had had enough. His nerves were shot. On July 5th, he walked away from the expedition and back to civilization. Powell and eight men continued on. The men endured hardship after hardship. They ran dangerous rapids. They lined, that is, they walked along the shore holding onto lines attached to the boat as it floated through the rapid, or portaged, meaning carried the boats along the shore to be relaunched below the rapid. They were thrown overboard and had to swim for their lives. What food they had left, spoiled. They suffered through 100-degree heat and flash floods. By mid-August, they were fighting with one another at every turn. On August 27th, they arrived at what was to be named Separation Rapid, one of the worst yet. After scouting from shore, the men determined that they could neither line nor portage around it and had no choice but to run it. Three men, however, had reached their limit. Oramel Holland, his brother Seneca, and William Dunn. They decided to hike out of the canyon and walk overland to one of the Mormon settlements they knew to be in the area, rather than to commit certain suicide by running the rapid. On the morning of August 28th, Powell and the remaining five men boarded two of the boats, leaving one behind, and successfully ran the rapid. Dunn and the Howlands, having watched the boats make it to safety below, turned away and climbed out of the canyon. One week later, as Powell and his brother Walter were traveling through St. George, Utah on their way back to Salt Lake City, He asked for news about the three men who had left the river on August 28th and traveled overland. The first news of their fate arrived in St. George by telegram on September 7th, a few days after Powell's inquiry. It stated that three white men were killed by Shivwitz Paiutes in retaliation for killing a young woman. The telegram had no indication who sent it or where it was from. When Powell heard this news, he strongly disagreed with the notion that his men would kill an innocent young woman. Several days later, a dispatch was received by Powell in Salt Lake City, stating that a Southern Mormon elder had discovered the bodies. But there is no mention of what he did with the bodies. By the end of the month, the story had changed. The three men did not molest the young woman. Rather, they were killed by an enraged Shivwitz whose friends had been killed by miners on the other side of the Colorado River. The story continues with the claim that the Shivwitz burned all the papers possessed by the three men. The papers were presumably the duplicate records of the expedition that the men were carrying. The story changes once again in a November letter written by one Joseph Johnson, a resident of St. George when it is reported that the men raped the young woman before killing her and that once they had been murdered, their bodies were left to the wolves. This story is immediately discounted by Johnson and he states that the Paiutes killed the white men for what they had. Now the motive is robbery. Johnson changes his story in December when he again writes that the men were killed by a band of Shivwits who were seeking revenge for one Shivwitz Paiute who was killed by miners across the Colorado River. The final known account, penned by the aforementioned Southern Mormon elder Erastus Snow on December 9th, states that he sent out a search party in response to Powell's inquiry in early September, although he failed to mention this in his September dispatch to Salt Lake City. The search party returned with the news that some Paiutes had killed three white men about 100 miles southeast of St. George, not because they had provoked the Paiutes, but in retaliation for some miners who had killed some Paiutes and ravished their young women on the other side of the Colorado River. The following summer, Powell returned to the area to plan another river trip and met with the Shivwits to try to get some answers. A Mormon guide named Jacob Hamblin translated the exchange. The Shivwits admitted to the killing, but now it was one young woman who was killed by miners in a drunken brawl, and Powell's men happened along at the wrong time and were killed in revenge. So, what really happened? No bodies have ever been found, Although one of the original expedition members, William Hawkins, stated a few months before he died in 1919 that he had found and buried the bodies in the Shivwitz Mountains below Kanab Wash, a statement that has never been verified. None of the men's possessions have ever been found, although Jack Sumner claimed to have seen the silver watch he gave to Oramel Holland to give to his sister in the possession of a drunken carouser. Their papers, possessions, and bodies disappeared seemingly into thin air. All we have are changing stories and unconfirmed theories. Were they killed by Paiutes or by Mormons who thought the men were federal agents sent to harass them and who then blamed the Paiutes when they realized their mistake? Why did the story keep changing? Did Jacob Hamblin give a faithful translation of the Shivwitz' confession to the murders? If the Paiutes did admit to killing the white men, why were they not charged and punished? For now, we have a lot of unanswered questions. If somebody finds a pile of bones one day on the Shivwitz Plateau, and DNA analysis proves they belong to Oramel Howland, Seneca Howland, and William Dunn, maybe then we will know what happened to the three men who hiked out of Separation Canyon on August 28th, 1869, and were never seen again.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor. Ladies and gentlemen, now you can travel all the way to the Grand Canyon in comfort and style. Ride the Santa Fe Railroad to the very edge of the grandest canyon of them all. Instead of a dusty long trip on a bumpy stagecoach, you now can enjoy the comfort of a deluxe passenger car with the most modern features. And at the low cost of only $3.95, you arrive from Williams, Arizona, relaxed and ready to enjoy the views of one of the seven wonders of the natural world. And if you wish to stay overnight, the El Tovar Hotel has accommodations that will not disappoint you. Many say it is the finest hotel west of the Mississippi River, and only a few steps from the rim with glorious views of the canyon. Run by the celebrated Fred Harvey Company, you will enjoy great accommodations and the finest of meals served in the beautifully decorated dining room.
3: Call Klondike Five to make your reservation today.
1: Now, if you read the history books, or talk to anyone who knows anything about the history of the Grand Canyon, they'll probably all tell you that Major John Wesley Powell was the first man to run the Colorado River through Grand Canyon on his expedition in 1869. But if you really start digging, and you talk to real down-to-earth western frontier folk, miners, and prospectors like myself, or folks who live at the Grand Canyon or who run the Colorado River, you might hear the name of another fella, James White. Now, James White was pulled out of the Colorado River in Colville, Arizona Territory, which is about 60 miles down the river from the Grand Wash Cliffs at the western end of the Grand Canyon in early September 1867. He was floating on a raft made of logs tied together, if you can believe it, half naked and on death's very doorstep he was, starving and covered with sores and cuts and bruises, his hair and skin bleached from the sun barely showing any sign of life. A bunch of folks pulled him out of the river, wondering where on God's green earth he could have come from. Ain't nobody usually come down the river to Colville, except a group of Mormons earlier that year in the spring led by a fella named Jacob Hamblin, and they sure didn't look like this fella after that trip. A whole region upriver of the Grand Wash Cliffs for a thousand mile was still marked unexplored on maps in those days. No one really knew what was there except tales of a gigantic canyon the likes of which no one ever saw, with walls soaring thousands of feet high on either side of the river. But by the looks of him, this fellow Wyatt may well have gone through there. So naturally, the folks in Colville were pretty keen on hearing his tale. Now, it turns out he'd been prospecting for gold with two other fellows over in Colorado Territory in the San Juan Mountains about a month before, working their way from the San Juan River up north towards the Grand when a bunch of Indians jumped him. The leader of the group, a fella by the name of Captain Baker, he was shot and killed right off the bat, but White and the other fella, George Stroll was his name, they managed to escape with their horses down a side canyon and reached the river. Under cover of dark, they, they took some supplies from their horses and some ropes and tied together a bunch of driftwood into a raft and shoved off on the river to get away from the Indians what killed Captain Baker. After about four days on the river, Stroll was washed off the raft in a rapid and drowned. After that, White tied himself to the raft with a, a length of rope so he could pull himself back to it any time he was washed off. And no food neither, seeing as how the provisions they would grabbed from the horses were washed away when George Stroll drowned, so he had to scrounge for whatever he could find along the way, which weren't much. And after seven straight days with no food, White ran into some Indians who traded him part of a dog for one of his pistols and I suppose that after that long on the river with nothing to eat, even the hindquarters of a dog would seem like a feast. After White was hauled out of the river in Colville and he crawled back from the brink of death enough to tell his story best he could remember it, the news traveled pretty fast. Now, Mr. White wasn't much for writing either and he rather wanted to put the whole affair behind him, so it mostly fell to others to write down and, and tell his story. And His tale ended up being written down about half a dozen different ways by different people, and so what really happened ended up a, a bit jumbled in the end. Now, Mr. White did write a letter to his brother back in Wisconsin, though, about three weeks after being fished out of the river, recounting his adventures as best he could. And putting aside the official report by Dr. Perry for the railroad survey and the the newspaper articles which started popping up all over the country, I'd say Mr. White's own words probably tell the story best. And I just happen to have a copy of that letter with me here today. Dear brother, he started out, "it, it has been some time since I've heard from you. I got no answer from the last letter that I wrote, for I left soon after I wrote. I went prospecting with Captain Baker and George Stroll in the San Juan Mountains. And we found very good prospects, but nothing that would pay. And We started down to the San Juan River. And we traveled down about 200 miles, and then we crossed over on the Colorado and camped. And we laid over one day, and we found out we could not travel down the river, and our, our horses had sore feet, and we'd made up our minds to turn back when we were attacked by fifteen or twenty Ute Indians. I uh, killed Baker, and George Stroll and myself, we took four ropes from our horses and knacks, and 10 pounds of flour, and our guns. Now We had good sailing for three days, and, and the fourth day, George Stroll was washed off the raft and drowned. And that left me alone. My raft would tip over three or four times a day. Third day, we lost our flour. And seven days, I had nothing to eat but my rawhide knife cover. Now, the eighth or ninth day, I got some mesquite beans on the 14th day, I arrived at Caulville, where I was taken care of by James Ferry. I was 10 days without pants or boots or hat, and I was sunburnt so I could hardly walk. And I saw the hardest time that any man ever did in the world, but thank God I got through safely. Now, to a simple prospector and man of the West such as myself and Mr. White's words ring pretty true and honest, but it didn't take long for folks to start trying to tear him down. Just two years later in 1869, Major Powell finished his famous expedition down through the Big Canyon of the Colorado, Grand Canyon as he started calling it. And right away, he and his men started trying to say there ain't no way that one man on a raft could have made that trip. Uh, But after Powell turned into a big shot back east in Washington, most folks forgot about poor old James White. Now the thing is, that was just fine with him. You see, Mr. White just wanted to forget about the whole thing and move on with his life. Like most of us prospectors and frontiersmen out west, Mr. White was a simple man, not not much book learning, trying to make his way in the world. Now he certainly never wanted to end up floating down a river on a raft for weeks and nearly dying in the process. Not not that he even really knew that the Grand Canyon of the Colorado even existed at the time, much less that he could get famous by passing through it. Lots of folks over the years have tried to say there's no way James White could have done what he did, though really. It wasn't really ever him that said what he did at all. He didn't even know what he'd done. I mean, he certainly never tried to make no money off it, nor claim any fame or glory neither. Some folks even went so far as to call him a liar they said he made the whole thing up. Now, why White did he make up such a story, about a canyon he didn't even really know existed, and how he ended up almost dead on a raft in Colville if he made the whole thing up, well, none of that makes sense to me at all. Well, it seems to me that Things probably went down about how he said they did. In running for his life and almost dying out of starvation or drowning in the rapids, he just jumbled up some details along the way. and Even so, he still managed to get lots of things right about the canyon. You know, things no one should have known at the time. Now, Point being, lots of folks have had lots to say about White's story over the years. a Lot more than White himself ever really had to say about it. And we may never know for sure what really happened or whether White was really the first person through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River. Not that it ever really seemed to matter all that much to White himself, mind you. But to those folks who say that White's trip as he told it is impossible, I'd say that well, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, Colorado River runner himself, he said it best. To those who say that such a voyage cannot be made on a raft. I answer that men in desperate circumstances have accomplished more dangerous feats than running Colorado River Rapids on a raft. To those who say that White is wrong on certain points, I say to imagine yourself starved, cold, and scared as hell in the middle of the Colorado River on a raft, and then ask yourself whether you would give a tinker's damn about the scenery or details of it. I repeat that nothing yet has been brought forward to make me accept anyone other than White as the first through here.
3: Echoes from the Canyon is produced by park rangers at Grand Canyon National Park, including Taryn Bartkus, Luke Bowman, Christina Caparelli, Jeremy Childs, Joe Dawson, Joel Kane, Ty Karlovitz, Nettie Klingler, Raider Lane, Brian Mall, Brenda Oates, Greg Rasnan, Ann Scott, Tish Tackett, David Whitebread, and John Wishart. We hope you can join us for the next episode. Until then, happy trails and stay safe.